Well, good morning again. We have some announcements for you. Um, it's good to be back. We missed you guys. I did not hate the sun in Arizona. It was like 80 degrees, you guys. Yes, we were in Oregon at the beach in the wind and the waves. Um, but then after that, we because Jason would have that Sunday off, we went to Arizona to kind of process and to do some strategic planning. So we were working in the sunshine and oh my goodness, I'm ready to move. No, I'm not because unless you're all coming with us, then, then we could totally do that. Um, but it is just good to, good to be back. Announcements that I have for things that are coming up, um, some of them are in the far away, some of them are in the real close, um, but Ignite is happening and that is Brookview's family meeting. It is our chance to get together and just kind of share the story of God among us and um, to talk about what's going on around the church. And so we invite you to come to that on February 25th. There it is, 6 to 8 p.m. Um, and we'll just talk more about that as we get closer to But I know that some of you guys are planners, and we want all of you um, who call this your church home to be able to come. And even if it isn't your church home and you're just checking us out, this is a really good way. It's kind of a peek behind the curtain um, to see what we're about and just kind of get to know people in a different setting other than Rose. That is a... Um, a look into the future of what we're going to be doing at Ignite. You will not be in rows. Because, you know, we were walking in Arizona and talking and planning and um, brainstorming. So there it is. It's going to get real crazy. Come on down. Come on down. Um, February 25th. Mark your calendar. And then um, some of you heard at the last Ignite, we talked about the reality that I would love to take families on a family trip um, to Ecuador. And this is really focusing on middle school, high school families. Now, if you have younger children than that, but you also have a middle school or high schooler, the trip is open to your entire family. Um, but the idea and the heart behind that is that we would be able to serve God together as families. And not only that, but to engage in um, spiritual conversations and dialogues about God together. And I know sometimes that can be really hard to find context as parents for that to happen. And so we get to like hop on a plane, go thousand miles away, have someone like me or even someone in the Ecuador field down there lead us in what is God doing among us and being able to talk about that and process that together. And part of my dream for this really was rooted in the idea that so often people go on these trips, like high schoolers will all go together, and um, they come back and their parents are like, how was it? And they're like, good, you'd never get it. And I don't think our kids need one more thing in their lives that we don't get. And so I just, I'd love us to be able to go together um, and for each, for parents to get to know each other, to um, be a village together as we serve the village that's there in Ecuador. And so we're going to have an interest meeting about that, two different dates. One will be Friday night. They're the same meeting. You don't need to come to both. I just want as many people to have the opportunity and the option to be able to come into here. If you don't have children, but you're like, I'm kind of like, I would love to invest in kids in that way, in families at Brookview to serve alongside of them, we would just want you to come. It is open to everyone, but I want you to know that the focus really is on students and parents working together. But I'd love um, generational uh, 
whatever. I can't think of the words, so I'm going to move on to the other date, which is so Friday and then Sunday, February 18th. And depending on how many people are planning to come, um, we'll just set the location for that. I love meeting in a home because it feels more hospitable and warm, but we might need to be here at the church too, which can be warm. I know. But okay, so there's that. The way that you sign up for it is by texting the word TRIP to the number behind me. Um, You can also write it out on your Connect card that's there. If you're watching at home online, you can also fill out the online communication card and indicate that as well. The very last thing that I have is an email that came in yesterday from the um, family resource advocate at Cedarway Elementary. And I could paraphrase what she said, but I'm feeling a bit brain dead, so I'm just going to read it. And this is from Belin. She says, I have a big ask for you. At Cedarway, we have a family of three children and a single mom living in a one-bedroom basement. That bedroom is occupied by the uncle of the students, and the mom and children are sharing a queen bed in a big kitchen dining living room. If you come across somebody donating a bunk bed, there's no space for single beds, and a dresser, that would be amazingly helpful for this family. The uncle works in construction and has a truck so that we can use that for pickup. Thank you for all of your support, always. So I don't know what I'm asking for. Outside of, I feel like all of us have our eyes open. Maybe you're part of those buy nothing groups and you've seen something like that. I don't know how God would provide for this need. I'm just throwing it out there and saying, I have a feeling that God knows more than I do what this might be. And I've watched him do that kind of stuff before. So... How do you get in touch with me? Email the, the Brookview Church, Briar, uh, whatever it is. Go to the website. It's on there. If you have my personal email, you can also email me. You can also text me if you know my number, or you can text the Brookview number. So there's lots of different ways. If you There's no burden, um, but I'm just throwing that out there. That is a need, and we'd love to see if we could jump on that um, and just bless their socks off in some way. So... There it is. Um, I mentioned the Connect cards. I mentioned the online communication card for those of you that are watching at home. And that's it. One of the longer intros we've had, uh, and Bryce was not prepared for that. If you were here last week, I think he just went, and they're like, "Oh, shut it off." <laughs> you guys, man, we missed you. Um, it was uh, we, we we were walking in the 78 degree weather uh, during church, 
taking it all in, and we, we got way more out of it than any of you did, uh, you know, because Bryce is awesome. And uh, we, Bryce, for those of you that don't know, um, Bryce's job up at Smoky Point Church is coming to an end, and he's going to preach at least one more time here, and then he's trying to figure out what to do next. And so uh, I know many of you j- just really love him and adore him, and if you're, if you're praying and you run out of stuff to pray for, um, pray for Bryce and what's next for him. It's been, a, it's been an amazing thing to have him come here over the years so many different times, and he feels kind of like, like family to us. So, um, but it was, it's amazing to, to, for us, to Jen and I, get away and walk and listen to church on YouTube as we're walking and processing it all. The other thing that I thought was amazing last week is we had, we had Alex and Rebecca both singing together, and uh, they're both, they both sing lead. Neither one of them is like, I just love to sing harmony. <laughs> and yet it was like, it was amazing. You guys just playing. I, I, I didn't realize that both of you could sing that much harmony. It was, it was really, was it not really good? It was very good. So it was very pleasing in my, uh, my, iP- my iPad, pod, pod, AirPods, AirPods. <laughs> yeah, I think we were, we were listening through the interweb, so... All right, enough of that. You guys, we're in this series, and we're thinking, about, we're thinking about hearing God amidst all the noise. In our world, there's so much distraction, so many voices, and so how do we tune out what needs tuning out, and how do we tune into the voice of God? And for the apprentice of Jesus, that is going to involve a life immersed in Scripture. The most foundational place that we hear from God, and there are many places we can hear from God, but the most foundational place that we hear from God is through the Bible. So for the next couple of weeks, we're going to think about Scripture, and how does this work? How do we hear from God in Scripture? Now, there are a few logical places to begin a conversation on Scripture. Um, We could start with a discussion, uh, we could start a discussion with all the questions and problems that late modern Western people have with the Bible. I mean, the Bible raises a lot of issues. Have any of you guys read it? (laughs) It is full of weird stuff. You know, like, why does Ruth sleep at Boaz's feet? What's going on there? How does Jacob not realize that it's the wrong sister on his wedding night? (laughs) Have you read that one? He sleeps with Leah, not Rachel. Whoops. How did that happen, right? It contains all kinds of of cringeworthy stuff, right? From polygamy to sexual assault to all kinds of holy war. It's filled with the miraculous, which is hard for skeptical people. And it was written within a context of sheer brutality. That's the ancient world. And that brutality can be felt within its pages. So I think we're experiencing a generation-wide breakdown of faith in the Bible. And you're like, yes, I mean, look at our culture. But I don't primarily mean outside the church, in secular culture. I mean inside the church, not our church, but all churches. I mean, many people now see the Bible as more of an obstacle to faith than an aid to it. And I know many followers of Jesus who, who are deeply drawn to Jesus. And they will say, I, I love Jesus. And they're compelled by his vision and, and, and God, uh, his vision of God's love and the kingdom, uh, compelled by his teachings and his life and all that his sacrifice, his kindness. In other words, Jesus is deeply compelling, but, 
But for them, the Bible, not so much. For them, the Bible is, is more of an obstacle to faith than an aid to it. And you guys, this is, I think this is a, a, quite a bit of a shift in the last couple of decades. Because I remember what it was like in the early 90s, like when I first came to Christ. In many churches, the Bible was, was virtually unquestioned. Like if you're a boomer or, or an Xer and you like, and you grew up in the church, try to remember what the culture was like around the Bible in the church you grew up in. I mean, your, your church parents would read about something like, let's say the Battle of Jericho, right? The walls come, what? Tumbling down. Good. We know this story. Your, your, I mean, it's miraculous, right? And your church parents would read about the Battle of Jericho, and they would think, isn't that awesome? Look at the power of God. And then they would personalize the story, and they would ask, what's my Jericho? How do I march around it in God's power? And they would make it into, like, allegory, which it isn't. But more and more today, people read a story like that, the story of Jericho, and they think, oh, okay, but how is that not genocide in the name of God? And the feeling isn't inspiration. It's trepidation. What kind of book is this? What kind of God is this? And you guys, I get it. I get it because I am, I'm a skeptic by nature, and I've had to wrestle with Scripture a ton. And in the early years, the stuff that I would come across and the challenges and all of that in the Bible caused me to, to almost bail. Like, I, I teetered on giving up on Jesus altogether. And so I have all kinds of empathy for those of you that very much are still in the process of working out your relationship with the Bible. But after a ton of prayer and after a ton of struggling, I'm in a very different place now. And some of you might be like, well, I hope so, Pastor. <laughs> I am in a very different place, but there are still things that bother me, plenty of things, and I still have a lot of questions. But you guys, the Bible over the years, over the decades, it, has, it truly has become a, a cold glass of water for my thirsty soul. Like, in it, I encounter a God who, of love who inspires me, and it, it fills me with hope and peace and new life, but it hasn't always been the case, and so I get it. I have so much empathy for those of you that are still in process with the Bible. So we could start there, like the questions and problems. And it would take years, but there are really great answers to a, a lot of that stuff. Like not every question, not every issue, but a huge amount of it. But that approach would, would start us off with a heart posture where we're the judge and the jury, and we put the Bible on trial, and we examine the evidence to see if it's Guilty or innocent. And while some of you, you really do need to go through that process, like you really do, you can't just decide to be a, a follower of Jesus and not go through that process on some level. So you need to do that. But here's the thing. It isn't really the right heart posture of an apprentice of Jesus toward the Bible. So another place that's further down the path toward apprenticeship to Jesus is that we could, we could start with the Bible's claims about itself. I mean, there's a lot in Scripture about Scripture. But if you're somebody who doesn't already trust the Bible, then that's a non-starter because it's circular reasoning. Like, we don't, we don't trust the Bible as Scripture simply because it claims to be Scripture any more than we would trust the Koran or the Book of Mormon because they claim, although in their own way, to be a kind of scripture. Also, if we really have come to trust the Bible, that approach 
it still keeps us in a heart posture that I don't think is quite right, where we, we stand at arm's length from the Bible and we, we just evaluate it. We study it, assess it, arm ourselves with a defense of it. We turn the world into us and them, right? There's us who believe in the Bible and them who don't, and we're going to defeat them with the power of our arguments. That posture doesn't lead to renewal or transformation. And many of us have encountered people who know the Bible. You ever encountered somebody who really knows the Bible, and they can quote it, and they know it like the back of their hand, and they have solid theology, and they can use big words like propitiation, and, and, and they, and, and they, and they and like... But they've not become kind, loving, joyful, at peace people that look like Jesus. So I think it's better to start off our conversation from another place, not with all the questions or problems that people have with the Bible, and not even with the Bible and what it says about itself. Instead, as followers of Jesus, as, as apprentices of Jesus, what if we start our conversation with the Bible with Jesus? I mean, after all, Jesus was a, a rabbi, which means what? Teacher. And what did Jesus teach? He taught the Jewish scriptures. He taught the Bible of his day, right? What we now call the Old Testament. Jesus taught, interpreted, and applied the scriptures. And here's the other thing. He took issue with other people's interpretations and applications of the scripture all the time. Like, his mind and imagination were saturated by Scripture and its story. His vision of life in the kingdom of God and, and his identity itself was all based on the Scriptures. Like, his reverence and respect for the Scriptures was off the charts. He said things like, the Scripture cannot be broken. In another spot, he, he was referencing one of the verses from the Psalms. And Jesus said, David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared... And then, boom, Jesus quoted from one of the Psalms, quoted David. To Jesus, David's writings were inspired by the Holy Spirit. He then quoted from the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy when, it, when Satan himself was, was testing Jesus. Jesus said, it is written, and he quoted from the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. I mean, the reason that, that many of us have made the Bible central to our lives is because we're deeply compelled by the life and the teaching of Jesus. And we've come to believe that there, there has never been anyone like Jesus. We've come to love him, we've come to trust him, and we've decided to learn how best to live, not from our culture and all the voices, but from him. And at an intuitive level, we know that Jesus and the Bible, they come together. I would argue that there's no version of legitimate apprenticeship to Jesus that does not have a central place for the Bible and does not read the Bible as Scripture. Um, I like the way Andrew Wilson explains this relationship. He writes, Ultimately, our trust in the Bible stems from our trust in Jesus Christ, the man who was God, the king of the world, the crucified, risen, and exalted rescuer. I don't trust in Jesus because I trust in the Bible. I trust in the Bible because I trust in Jesus. I love him, and I've decided to follow him. So if he acts and talks as if the Bible is trustworthy, authoritative, good, helpful, and powerful, I will too, even if some of my questions remain unanswered or my answers remain unpopular. So I'd like to start off the discussion on Scripture from a different place. Instead of questions or problems that people have with the Bible, or even what the Bible claims about itself, 
I think it'd be very helpful to simply ask, what did Jesus have to say about the scriptures? And in his most famous uh, teaching, his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus lays out a vision for what human flourishing looks like. And it is breathtaking to me. It's compelling and it's true and it's beautiful. I've taught on it a couple times. Um, and in many cases, it's counterintuitive. Like it's, it's unexpected, which is why Jesus begins with his view of Scripture. So I want to go back to what Jesus says toward the beginning of that sermon that he gave, his foundation to frame up the entire talk. He says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Now, the phrase, the law and the prophets, was just a first century way of summing up the Jewish scriptures as they existed in Jesus' day. It's just like a rabbinic way of saying the Old Testament. He's saying, I have not come to abolish the Old Testament. So the, the Greek word translated abolish meant like to tear down, as in a building, or more simply, to disobey. So Jesus was saying, I have not come to disobey or disrespect or tear down the Old Testament. Now, here's the thing. Why would Jesus even need to say that? Well, apparently, he was saying, doing, and teaching such radical things, things so countercultural and subversive to the religious time of his era that some were suggesting that his teaching wasn't rooted in scriptures that he was doing something radical and new and leaving the old behind. So Jesus begins by affirming his reverence for it. But in so doing, he throws in something else really subversive and radical that got people fired up. He says, I've not come to abolish them, but to what? Fulfill them. You guys, this is not what, a, what Jewish people would expect a Jewish rabbi to say. You think about it, if the, if the word abolish means to disobey, then you'd expect Jesus to complete his thought this way. I've not come to disobey the scriptures, but to obey them, right? Instead, he says, I've come to fulfill them, as if all scripture leads and points to him. He continues, for truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. He's saying, let me be clear. I'm not here to disregard or override even the tiniest bits of scripture. In fact, if you devote your life to living out these scriptures as I'm about to interpret and explain them to you, and you help others do the same, you will live the apex of human existence, a life immersed in God's kingdom now and forevermore. And then immediately, Jesus goes on to teach directly on an Old Testament scripture. So this is verse 21. He, he goes from that and he says, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder. And he quotes from Exodus 20, and then he teaches on the heart of it. He says, but I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. He's saying, if you think murder avoidance is the apex of God's vision for human relationships, you're badly mistaken. The goal is the deepest kind of agape love. For humans to truly flourish, murder avoidance is kind of a low bar, don't you think? 
So maybe let's not start with murder and go, yeah, not doing that. I'm righteous. Maybe let's start with anger. And all through his sermon, he does the same thing. He quotes from the Old Testament. You have heard it said. And then he says, but I tell you. And he gives a fuller interpretation of the heart of the passage. I mean, for the majority of the, of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus was simply teaching or reteaching on the already existing scriptures of the day, calling into question wild, widely held misinterpretations and applications and inviting people to return and to live out the heart of the scriptures as they were intended in the first place. Now, please notice the implication of this. Hey, it means that Jesus' way of reading scripture calls into question other ways of reading scripture. In his day and in our own. So in our day, the Bible's been caught up in the culture wars of America, which includes the growing polarization between right and left. And while there are many facets to the polarization between right and left, one of them is how the two extremes tend to view the Bible. Generally speaking, okay, the left views the Bible as simply a human document, right? It has good stuff in it, has some important history in it, contains some poetry that's, that's beautiful and some excellent moral teaching, but it is a human document, and that's all. So the thinking of the left toward the Bible often sounds kind of something like this. Yeah, it's, so it's full of human errors and contradictions. It includes all kinds of outdated ideas like restrictive sexual boundaries and limits and dangerous ideas like patriarchy and misogyny and sexism. And who knows how it was all put together with like Constantine and all of that. I, I think I read a book about that one time in history class. Yeah, I think it was history class. This was, I think it was called the Da Vinci Code, you know, because all of that's like completely historical, right? Anyway, anyway, there are real problems with the Bible. But, but it did record people's exist experiences with spirituality, so that's, that's kind of good. And, um, and some of it is, is beautiful literature, and it did give shape to Western civilization as we know it. So it's surely worth a read now and then. And this way of, of reading the Bible often takes it seriously, very seriously as human literature, but not as scripture. The, the view has a hard time accepting the Bible as both divine and human, as scripture. But in many cases, this is, this is a somewhat predictable reaction to something else, I think. It's a very natural reaction to the extreme rights way of reading the Bible. And by extreme right, I mean like fu the, a fundamentalist approach to the Bible. Tim Mackey from the Bible Project calls the fundamentalist view of scripture the golden tablets view. This sense that the Bible just sort of fell out of heaven, completed. That human beings weren't really involved in the creation of it. it. It envisions more of like a mindless dictation by God. Like, it's like the idea is like the author, you know, he fell into a trance and when he woke up, he, he wiped away the drool and, and miraculously there were words on the papyrus. <laughs> I mean, to the extreme fundamentalists, right, the Bible is most definitely a divine book. But you don't need to, to really think of it as human literature at all. And along with this view comes stuff like it's super easy to understand. There aren't any contradictory ideas in it. It's all very clear. It's our manual for living. 
So for any issue that you will ever face in your life, you can go to the Bible for a clear answer on what to do next. It's an answer book for any life question. And so the a common uh, fundamentalist mantra about Scripture, and if you grew up in the South or just really conservative area, it goes like this. The Bible says it, I believe it, and that settles it. Which conveniently leaves out one kind of significant step. The Bible says it, then we have to like interpret it. Which can be tricky, as it turns out. So this way of reading the Bible often takes it very serious, like seriously as divine, like it is the word of God, but it doesn't also at the same time treat it as human literature. So it ignores things like authorship and setting and the context of what was going on in the interpretation. And that's when crazy stuff happens in, uh, in the name of the Bible. Crazy stuff, like justifying the practice of slavery or stuff like supporting the, the suppression of women. So as we begin a conversation on Scripture, it's, it's important to recognize that fundamentalists and progressives read the Bible very differently, right? Now, there are four more, far more than two views on the Bible. It's not like there's, these are the only, these are just the most vocal, prominent ones in our culture these days. And it's interesting because Jesus had a ton of experience with groups that thought in similarly strange ways. Um, in the first century, there were several distinct sects of Judaism, and there are two that we read about a ton in the New Testament, okay? The Sadducees and the Pharisees. Now, the Sadducees, they actually had a ton in common with the progressives of today. The Sadducees were a small group of well-educated upper-class elites. They operated mostly in the urban centers of Jerusalem. They worked hand-in-hand with the Roman empire. They were educated, powerful, and wealthy, and they were extremely influential at political and economic levels and even in the realm of education. They were Jews, but they didn't take the scriptures very seriously at all. They believed in God, theoretically, but they were skeptics about anything supernatural. They didn't believe in angels, demons, resurrection. They didn't believe prayer could actually have any real effect on what goes on in the world. They preferred the Greco-Roman vision of the good life to that of Scripture. So what I want to do is just take a quick look at an interaction between Jesus and the Sadducees. And this is them coming at him with an attack on the supernatural, the idea of the supernatural, an attack specifically on the idea of resurrection. So this is Mark chapter 12, starting in verse 18. It says, Then the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, just theoretically the whole idea of it, came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us, okay, so in the Old Testament, that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry a widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, this all sounds weird. You're like, where is this going? That is a hard right turn. Um, That sounds weird to us, and this whole thing would take a ton of explanation, but this was a form of social justice in the ancient world where nobody took care of anybody else. And it was intended to protect women and to protect children, to provide for them and to care for them. It was stunningly ahead of its time within its original context. But all of this is a setup to critique the teaching and vision of Jesus. Okay, so that's coming. So, and it all flows out of the worldview of the Sadducees. So, you guys want to hear like 
a cheesy, very old, stupid pastor joke about Sadducees? Good answer. So, okay, here's, here it is. How do you remember what the Sadducees believed? Well, the Sadducees didn't believe in anything supernatural, prayer, angels, miracles, resurrection. That's why they were sad, you see? <laughs> Let's go! Come on! I did not come up with that. Keep your rotten fruit tucked away. Okay, so, so the Sadducees, they come at Jesus with an argument against the supernatural, and it's based on this, this, this is the whole setup, uh, and it's against bodily resurrection. If a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. They go on. Jesus is like, yeah. It says, now there were seven brothers, and what comes next is the mother of all hypotheticals. <laughs> now there were seven brothers, the first one married and died without leaving any children. The second one married the widow, but he also died leaving no child. It was the same with the third. In fact, none of the seven left any children. Last of all, the woman died too. At the resurrection, Jesus, whose wife will she be since the seven were married to her? <sighs> They're like, gotcha, Jesus. <laughs> Didn't think of that, did you? You know, boom, and it's just like mic drop, right? But notice the, just the, the contempt and the arrogance in their heart posture, both toward Jesus and toward the scriptures. Jesus replied, are you not in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God? He's like, you guys don't have a clue. When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven, the angels you don't believe in. Now about the dead rising, have you not read in the book of Moses in the account of the burning bush how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. You are badly mistaken. He's like, you guys have no idea what God is capable of doing. And in your arrogance, you're spewing ignorance. You don't understand the power of God in the heavenly realms or on earth. And so sadly, you're missing out on the amazing things that God is up to all around you in your midst. So that's the Sadducees, who in many ways parallel the progressives of our day. Okay, but then there's the other group, right? The, the Pharisees. And these guys get more press and they get a, a, more of a bad rap. Most of us are, are more familiar with these guys, who in many ways share similarities with modern-day fundamentalists. So the Pharisees were a Jewish movement that came mostly from the rural areas. They were from small-town, conservative, heartland kinds of places, and they were all about the Scripture. They read it, and they memorized it, and they recited it, and they made their kids read and memorize and recite it, and they would spend hours on scripture every single Sabbath at the synagogue, reading it, discussing it, debating it, memorizing it. They were devoted to it, and they'd get up early in the morning to study it. But their interpretations of it were often off, right? They were, they were legalistic. They focused on outward behavior to the neglect of what's going on inside the heart. As application of it, they, they added all kinds of needless rules that just restricted people and placed a heavy burden on people and what jesus what jesus referred to in, in multiple places just as human traditions 
So let's drop in on Jesus' conversation with the Pharisees in John 5. He says, You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. He's like, you guys are missing the whole freaking point. You diligently study the scriptures, which are all about me, and yet here I am, and you don't see me at all. If you truly understood the scriptures, you who are burdened by religion and rules could come to me, and I would give you rest. He goes on, I do not accept glory from human beings, but I know you. I know that you do not have the love of God in your hearts. He's like, don't you see? Your, your heart posture toward the scriptures, toward all of it, is way off. Yes, you know the Bible, but you don't live the Bible. You know it, and you quote it, and, 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 but it isn't, it, it isn't forming you into a person characterized by self-giving love. Jesus goes on. He says, I have come in my Father's name, and you do not accept me. But if someone else comes in his own name, you'll accept him. How can you believe since you accept glory from one another, but do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? But do not think I will accuse you before the Father. Your accuser is Moses. Okay, that's code for the Old Testament scriptures, especially the first five books on whom your hopes are set. If you believed Moses, if you actually believed in the scriptures, you'd believe in me for he wrote about me. In other words, you're devoted to knowing the scriptures, but you don't understand them. If you understood them, you'd recognize who I am and respond to me. And then the Father and the Spirit would fill you with life. You study the scriptures, but you don't understand them, and you're missing the whole point. This is Jesus' words to the most devoted religious people of his day, the Pharisees. And Jesus said to them what I think so many need to hear today. You are devoted to knowing the scriptures, which is great, but for all the wrong reasons. The goal is, is to let scripture form you, to let it seep into your soul and make you more loving and wise and kind and gracious and strong and so on. The scriptures are an invitation into the kingdom of God, into the participation of the kingdom of God both now and forevermore. But if you approach them with the wrong frame of mind, you'll miss it. And so in both cases, with the Sadducees and with the Pharisees, Okay, with the progressives and the liber- uh, fundamentalists of his, of his day, Jesus is, is deeply concerned about their heart posture toward Scripture. Um, I want to just look at one more pas- uh, passage written by a former Pharisee named Paul, a man who left all the legalism behind because of his newfound love for Jesus. And, and this is a word from Paul to his young protege named Timothy, It happens to be the second letter that we have on record from Paul to Timothy, so it's called, good job, you guys, 2 Timothy. Okay, here we go. Here's what Paul writes about Scripture to his young protege. But as for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of because you know those from whom you learned it. You know how beautiful their lives were and are. You saw that they lived this, and you saw what a life saturated by scripture looks like because you know those from whom you learned it and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures in other words you were immersed in this from birth because of people around you what a rich heritage i would say i didn't grow up that way but what a rich heritage some of you also have 
and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. He's saying, Timothy, whatever you do, draw near to Jesus by filling your mind, heart, and soul with Scripture. It will make you skillful in navigating all the different complexities of life. And then comes an iconic statement from Paul about the nature of Scripture. He says, all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Paul says, all Scripture is God-breathed, meaning it is inspired by God. Most literally, the Greek word means breathed out by God. The idea is that all Scripture is both human and divine. It's guided by God's Spirit, yet it comes through a human author with a, with a personality. We're going to talk a lot more about this next week. It comes through a human author with a personality in a certain time and context and culture facing certain issues. We have to think about what those are. And then Paul lays out what Scripture is intended to do. He gives a kind of four-word description that I th- is just so rich and deep. This is what Scripture can do in somebody's life. It says it's for teaching to reveal to us the whole new possibility of life in God's kingdom on earth through wholeness in Jesus. Second, rebuking. To reveal to us any of the ways that we're currently living that are out of alignment with that wholeness in Jesus. We need that. Third, correcting, which means to bring back into alignment. Scripture brings us back into alignment with the wholeness of Jesus. And then fourth, training. And this is, a, this is a well-known Greek word in Jesus' day, and it referred to the overall process of growth like in a Greco-Roman child. So from infancy to childhood to adulthood into maturity. So a parent or a tutor, if people were wealthy that have a tutor, would nurture the child toward adulthood. And through a beautiful combination of things like education and discipline and wisdom and structure, um, this child would become mature. And Paul says there's something about regular interaction with Scripture that has this effect on a life if we approach it with the right heart. It's like a kind, loving, skillful skillful parent or teacher or coach. It cultivates and it matures our soul into wholeness in Jesus. So all four of these things are moving us toward a particular end. Verse 17, it's so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. I mean, the goal is to embody the epitome of everything that a human being can become. So if we hear what Jesus is saying and what Paul is echoing, Scripture has the capacity to do extraordinary things in us. However, for Scripture to lead us to human flourishing, we must approach it with the right heart posture. And this is where it gets tough because, you guys, this heart posture does not come naturally to us. It's something that we're rarely taught in school or by our parents or, or our culture. And for most of us, it is a completely foreign way of interacting. Um, it's radically different from, like, it's a radically different way of reading and experiencing things. Now, we could summarize the, the shift this way. It, it's a shift from informational to formational. And we live in the information age, right? Information is a powerful commodity. Whoever has the best information has the best life or the most power, right? Whoever has the best information about money, about the economy, about politics, about diet and exercise, whoever has the best information about deals on travel, okay, about whatever. Like they're, they're in the best position to control their life and to get the outcome that they want. 
And so this age and culture train us to read for information, not for formation. So like when we come to a textbook or a self-help book or a work of journalism or a blog or a social media post, the goal is not to like let it form us, right? The goal of informational reading is to master the content, to understand it so that we can bring it under our control and use it as much as possible. Whereas the goal of of a formational reading is to actually be reshaped, to allow the content to change us and form us, to, to take the content into our heart and into our mind and into our body to become new and different from inside out. For Scripture to have the effect that God intends, Jesus bids us to shift from informational to formational. Now, the goal of of informational reading is to cover as much ground as fast as possible to get the data we need, right? And some of you are very skilled at this. I'm not. I'm slow. Some of you are very skilled at this. Now, informational reading is not bad, okay? It's not evil. Informational reading is necessary a lot of the time. I, I do it often as a part of my role as a pastor. It's not evil or bad. There's a time and place for it, even with the Bible. There's a time and place to just know what does the Bible say and how does this work. It's okay to know stuff. But if that's all that we ever do, if that's the only way that we approach the Bible, we will miss out on the power of Scripture to form us. So the basis of new life in the kingdom is inner yieldedness to Jesus, right? And that yieldedness becomes part of how I then approach Scripture. Rather than looking only for the stuff that helps me achieve my goals, rather than looking only for things in it that I already believe, rather than trying to know stuff to know stuff, I yield. If I yield, I'm open to whatever God has to say to me, and now Scripture can form me into something new. Now, This is not an easy posture to take. Like, it's not an easy posture to take with Jesus, and it's really not an easy posture to take with Scripture. Because in all of us is something that is crying for independence, is crying for our own way. Like, no, I don't care what your personality type is. I don't care what you are, if you're an IFMJQR or whatever. (laughs) We're resistant. We are resistant to yielding. We are resistant to yielding to anyone or anything. And if you go, no, we're not. Yes, yes, we are. Uh, Take a look at at any any three-year-old. Like in the language of your three-year-old with an older sibling, this is what's going on inside of all of us all the time. You're not the boss of me. (laughs) And what, what I've found over the years with Jesus is that actually I can trust him. He knows far better than I do what life is all about. He knows far better than I do what leads to love and goodness. He knows where real meaning can be found. He knows better than I do what I need to flourish. When I let go of my desires and plans and goals and dreams, when I come to him not not demanding my own way, when I'm open, yielded, available to new ways of seeing things, that's when he speaks to me. And when he speaks... He speaks life every time. But if I come to him with preconceived ideas about how life has to go, and I expect him to give me life on my terms in all the ways that I want, success as I define it, meaning as I define it, 
peace by whatever means I think I need to have it. When I make those demands, here's what happens. I become deaf to the voice of Jesus. And I've discovered that my understanding of what leads to happiness, you guys, is really lacking. I'm, I've been so wrong over and over. I've been so sure about what the good life looks like. And not surprisingly, it's looked a whole lot like what culture tells me it's supposed to look like. Wealth, comfort, success, freedom, meaning independence, meaning not needing anyone or anything, meaning no accountability, meaning not being obligated to anyone or anything, freedom to do whatever the heck I want whenever the heck I want. That's the good life. But over time, you guys, my vision of the good life has been molded by Jesus, and it's continuing to expand, and I have, I have a long ways to go, but I'm learning. Jesus proclaimed an upside-down kingdom, right? The last will be, the, great, the least will be the, okay, the weak will be, the fools will become wise. The, the only way to the deepest life is an upside-down way. It's opposite of what our world tells us. Jesus says to take up your cross and die to yourself. And I used to, I used to visualize that as like, ah, crap, that's really what the Christian life's all about. <laughs> that sucks. <laughs> but, you know, I do want to go to heaven. So <laughs> how much of that do I need to do? You know, because I want to make sure I'm in, but I also want to enjoy my life. <laughs> so... Take up your cross and and die to yourself. That doesn't sound very inspiring. Like if I was going to start a movement, (laughs) just saying, I don't know that that would be the tagline. Love lived is better, don't you think? (laughs) Can you imagine us putting that on the sign out there? Take up your cross and die to yourself. 10.30 a.m. So I, I I used to view that as like, ah, man, that's hard, and, you know, Jesus is hardcore, and God's demanding an awful lot of me. What I didn't realize is, that is the only way to freedom in life. And Jesus knew it. He knew it. And he's like, I'm not going to sugarcoat it for you. You want, you want to be fulfilled? You want meaning? You want purpose? You want love? You want relationships that flourish? You want a life that becomes the, the, all, all that a human life can become? This is the only way. But I used to visualize, and this is part of what made it such a turnoff for me. I used to visualize that whole experience like this, this desperate grasping, right? Like, like white knuckle, flex all my muscles, kind of clinging, this, this sort of grip my teeth and just be like, deny yourself. Turns out that doesn't actually work very well. Have you tried that? Like in the moment of temptation? or in a moment of anger, or a moment of decision, or in a moment of weakness, or whatever, you know, for me, it's just like this screaming, like, do the right thing, Jason, deny yourself. But more and more, I'm learning that it, it really isn't this. Actually, it's, it's, it's this. Right? It's, it's open hands. It, it is a spirit of, of yieldedness to Jesus. It's just this place of coming and saying, okay, Jesus, here I am. Have your way. And, and that's the posture that is, is, is required to really hear God in Scripture. 
here I am, Father. Have your way. Whatever you have to say, wherever you want to lead, I'm open. I trust you. I yield to you. Speak, Lord. Your servant is listening. The more I approach Scripture with this heart posture, the more I hear God speaking to me. And the more I find freedom and life and joy and strength and all the rest of it. And the reason that, you know, I'm, I'm passionate enough about this to, like, be a pastor and teach it, just so you guys know, I could do other stuff. I could be good at other stuff. <laughs> the reason that I'm passionate about this is, is over the last couple decades, but especially over the last few months and few years, I've, I've walked through so much. And, and many of you have. Many of you are. You're walking through so much, whether it's uncertainty or just struggle. And here's what I've discovered. Jesus has carried me. Jesus has steadied me and given me peace. And the primary way that that comes to me is through Scripture. Now, there's also been a lot of other stuff, community and, and prayer and friendship. And there's been like worship and music and art and all kinds of stuff. And I've, I've heard God in prayer and in the words of a friend or in the words of my very wise and beautiful spouse, I've, I've, I, like in nature and, and more. But the primary place that he speaks to me has continually been through scripture. Time alone, studying or reading or journaling. Sometimes just meditating on scripture, just mulling it over in my mind. For me, watching Bible project videos or hearing scripture in worship music, right? Letting a catchy tune help me contemplate it more deeply. Allowing it to seep down into my heart and into my, my soul. Listening to sermons, other people's preaching. There's really good guys out there besides me <laughs> and women. Uh, I mean, just uh, uh, podcasts. What, you know, what, what a gifted te- when a gifted teacher explains it, it's super helpful. Reading books that unpack it or help me see it in a different way. Discussing it inside of life groups or ID groups and on and on. My engagement with scripture has come in many, many different forms but it remains the primary way that God speaks to me. So I, I wrote out a little prayer to Jesus about my relationship with Scripture, and if any of you are in a place where you, you want to hear God speak to you, and you, you want to have a posture of yieldedness, not only to Jesus, but also to the Scripture Jesus loved, then um, I would just invite you to pray this along with me. And as the musicians make their way up, I just want to invite you guys to internalize this and allow, um, maybe allow your body to mirror your heart. So um, I just want to invite you guys to stand and extend open hands just as a way to align your body posture with a heart posture of openness. So you can stand, eyes, eyes closed, head bowed, hands open. And as I share um, my heart, toward scripture in this prayer. I, if this reflects your heart as well, then at the end of it, um, you can say amen with me. But Jesus, thank you for giving me so much grace. I've wrestled with the Bible since I first started seeking you. It's not come easy to me. There's so much I struggle to understand. But I believe you want to speak to me through it. And you have many times. There have been times I've needed you to speak and your word has, has come to life for me and given me hope or courage or clarity or helped me deal with sin in my life in a way that's led to healing and flourishing. 
but it's also confusing and hard, and sometimes I don't feel much at all. So when I encounter stuff that seems weird or confusing or even upsetting, help me to continue to trust you in it. Help me approach it with an open heart. Over the years as I've kept at it, you've brought so much of it to life for me. Jesus, please continue to bring more and more of it to life. Help me to establish rhythms in my life that enable me to encounter Scripture in a regular way. As I listen to worship music based on Scripture, as I listen to sermons, as I read it in journal, as I read it in groups and discuss it with them, as I watch Bible Project videos or whatever resources you make available to me, Jesus, would you make it come alive for me? And as a result, would you fill me with the life of the Holy Spirit? Use it to form me into a person of love and joy and peace and courage. And everyone who agreed with this prayer said,